Hello and welcome to My Roots Are Showing with myself, Nadina Regan. This is the podcast where we talk to well-known people about their lives and about what has made them who they are today. This time out, my guest is the one and only Mr. Graham Norton, the BBC chat show host, broadcaster, memoir writer, gin enthusiast and best-selling novelist. Usually for my route to showing, I go find the guest. That's kind of how it works. But this time out, the call came from an unexpected direction. The West Cork Literary Festival got in touch and its curator, Emer O'Hurlihy, wants to know if I would like to interview Graham Norton as part of the festival this year. She didn't need to ask twice. I'm a huge Graham Norton fan, have been for years, both of the broadcasting and of the writing. And uh, the only real concern I had in relation to the interview was what on earth was I going to ask him? What do you ask the person who always asks the questions? But in the event, Graham was the dream interview. Very generous with his time and very, very funny. Over the course of almost an hour, he spoke about his life flitting between his residences in London and West Cork, where he spends the summer every year. He spoke about growing up uh, largely in Bandon in County Cork. He spoke about what it was like to be child number two for Billy and Rhoda Walker. He spoke about getting into acting, Father Ted, changing his name from Graham Walker to Graham Norton to get that equity card. And he spoke about his encounters with celebrities like Mark Wahlberg, And he talked about his writing life too. He's the author of two memoirs and two novels, Holding and the most recent novel, A Keeper. My Roots Are Showing is of course available on all the major podcast platforms, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and basically wherever you get your podcasts. It is an entirely independent podcast, so if you listen to it and enjoy it, please do consider posting a nice review to iTunes, giving a little bit of a star rating, or even just mentioning it to your friends and getting the word out there. It all helps. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Nadana Regan, or at the show account, at My Roots Are Show. Now... Let's go to Graham Norton, to Emer O'Hurley, introducing uh, the pair of us, and to a brilliant 500-strong West Cork crowd. Good evening and welcome to the penultimate night of this year's West Cork Literary Festival. My name is Imura Hurlihy, I'm the director of West Cork Literary Festival and I think about 50 of my friends are here so I've probably no need to say that. Uh, yeah, most of the people are actually here for me. Um, so obviously we're delighted to have a West Cork writer here tonight. Such a pleasure always to have Graham Norton at the festival. So he's going to be in conversation tonight with Nadine O'Regan. And before I hand you over to Nadine and Graham, just out of respect for our two speakers, there will be no recording or no flash photography tonight. And other than that, have a great night. Thank you very much. Hello. (laughs) Hi. Hi. Thank you very much to Emer. I should mention my name is Nadine. Uh, I'm a journalist and also a podcaster, but also mainly a really huge Graham Norton fan. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's such a pleasure for me to be here and a real honor uh, to be in this position of interviewing Graham Norton at the festival. I've been a fan of his for an incredibly long time. All right. Um, <laughs> I mean, while he's so young, (laughs) but obviously through his work in broadcasting, in presenting on radio, also most notably, I suppose, in terms of the broadcasting career, the Graham Norton show, I've watched him be absolutely hilarious, interviewing everyone from Will Smith to Madonna to Will I Am and Miriam Margolds, we were talking about her earlier, absolutely brilliant. 
And uh, I've just always really admired him. I'd read the memoirs as well, actually, first off, the more recent memoir, and loved that also, found it very cheeky, funny, engaging, and offering up an account not only of, I suppose, his time in, in broadcasting and making it in broadcasting, but also giving me an idea of how he felt about West Cork, because, of course, although Graham is born in Dublin, he really is a West Cork man, I think it's fair <laughs> to say. Yeah. I'll take it, I'll take it, yeah. Um, um, but I always felt like he was kind of a London guy, you know, when I saw the show. And then when he published his first novel, Holding, I um, was so surprised by what I found because I think I'd expected something racy and maybe bodice ripping and glitzy. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> And instead, what I found was this beautiful, traditional story set in Cork of a sergeant who just wanted to be a little bit lighter and a little bit better at his job and maybe find love. And I absolutely fell in love with that book and was delighted to see that somebody who I'd really admired in that world of broadcasting was also translating his talents so successfully to the world of fiction. A little bit later on this evening, Graham is going to read from his new book, A Keeper, uh, another wonderful story. But before we get to all that and before we talk about the books, I actually wanted to start off um, this evening by having a chat to you about your mother oh, yes. and your background because reading the memoir there's a story in the memoir about how important your mother is to you and was to you growing up and how powerful an influence she exerted and I think it can be very well summed up by uh, the tale of your appendix well uh, what happened was, so when I was in school, obviously I didn't like going to school, to the point where, even before that, when we lived in Waterford, my father would drive me to school and I wouldn't get out of the car. I, I remember I, liked, I went to the first day, I was very keen, I had a school bag and pencil case for months. I was very excited about going to school. And so I went to school and that was great. I'd done that, hadn't I? So um, I didn't want to go again. I wanted to be at home with Rhoda. So my father would drive us, and then he couldn't get me out of the car. I'd be like onto the uh, steering wheel like that. And uh, so he'd be late for work, so he had to give up. And he'd just drive me home. And like, he wouldn't come in because my mother would have killed him. And he'd just like, open the door, and I'd go, mm, bye. And, <laughs> um, so my mother started taking me to school, and uh, she would beat me uh, with a wooden spoon along the road um, and I'd be hanging on to railings <laughs> and she'd be beating me and then uh, one night she was at a meeting of the mother's union and uh, someone was giving a talk about child welfare or something and uh, somebody said I saw an awful thing this morning <laughs> and she was on a car in her seat and her friends were just pissing themselves laughing but no so she was quite a frightening woman and um, that's, uh, that's kind of, you need to know that before you... So, uh, I didn't want to go to school again, but I was in uh, secondary school now. Oh, no, I was still in primary school, but in Bandon. And uh, so, I did that general thing of going, oh, I have a sore tummy, meow. And uh, so, my mother, my mother, you know, she's not stupid. She knew there was nothing wrong with me. So, uh, she goes, okay, okay, yeah, no, you're very bad to me. We'll go to the doctor. And I'm thinking, oh, no, because this had happened to my sister. She'd done this to my sister. My sister pretended to be sick, went to the doctor. So I had a doctor, but nothing wrong with that child. And my sister was in, like, double trouble. It was terrible. So I'm now so scared. But I can't now go, oh, nothing. So I, I go, well, I am very sick, so we will go to the doctor. And it was like a, <laughs> a double bluff thing. So... Uh, anyway, in the afternoon, she brings me down. We have an appointment. We go to the doctor. Uh, I'm brought in. I'm on the couch. He, you know, is going, where does, where does it hurt? And I'm going, wow. And, uh, yeah, no, I'm a bit sick, a bit in pain. And uh, that's fine. Then he says, okay, uh, if you'd like to go and wait outside, I need to speak to your mother. And I'm sitting outside going, well, I know what's going on in there. This is my death sentence. He is now telling my mother, there's nothing wrong with me. So I thought, oh, so anyway, uh, they call me back in, they sit me down, and the doctor went, well now, you have a thing called appendicitis. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then he went, so uh, next week, you'll be going in for an operation <laughs> to have your appendix out. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, now what do I do? Because 
now I can't back down because then I'll have my mother and a doctor furious at me <laughs> for lying. Uh, so I had my appendix out. Uh, I, I, I had the operation. Um, and I kept them. I kept them in a in a little small glass yeah, jar. Yeah, in in that thing. I had them for years, even after some of the kind of weird, goopy liquid had gone. I I still had them. Which reminds me, of a friend of mine, uh, Maria, who is on the radio with me. Uh, so she had um, <laughs> she had a little dog, and when it was time for it to get the snip, you know, when they were, she uh, got the vet to give her what was snipped in a little vile thing, in a little plastic thing, and then she would roll it on the floor and let the dog play with it. <laughs> <laughs> I digress. Uh, so it's fair to say you had some acts of rebellion that started young, and you also had a lot of follow-through on that. You know, you were willing to commit to uh, being a little bit of, I suppose, a little bit of a delinquent. Your first time on RTE was at the tender age of 17, um, and you... Was I 17? I think you were, yeah, you just started college, and you were well, there... Was school, surely? You looked very young in yeah. the footage, um, yeah. but I've, I've been told oh, that it was you, 17. You've done the research, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe you were younger, <laughs> but you were there to be... What happened to be at RTE? Why did I need to be 17? On <laughs> <laughs> maybe RTE just said you were 17. Yeah, he was 17. <laughs> <laughs> but you were there to talk about discotheques. I just, I, I think I, I, I applied, it was called Young Line. Yeah. I wrote in, uh, I wrote about something, but they paid for my train fare to go up to Dublin, so I was so excited to do it. Um, and then I had nothing to say about the subject at all, but... I'd gone all the way to Dublin, so I was going to say something. So um, I did, and now they've found it on, like... It's everywhere. On, yeah, it's on those archives, on the RT archive. And it is mortifying, but I have lovely hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, at that time, you've been a student at Banding Grammar. You had actually applied to journalism school at one point, yes. and you had considered many different careers. What did you feel in yourself that you wanted to be? I mean, I suppose... I wanted to show off, is what I wanted to do. And my first choice would have been an actor. But that, back then, seemed an impossible thing to do. How could you possibly do that? Because, um, you know, back then there was no drama school. And obviously I knew there were Irish actors, but it seemed a miracle how that happened to them. So I kind of thought journalism seemed like a job where you wouldn't be in an office all the time. You could wear a corduroy jacket with patches on the elbow. <laughs> You'd have a car. So I thought maybe I could do that. The School of Journalism in Rough Minds thought otherwise. Uh, and, you know, and, and it's one of those things, you know, you're, it's those things. And I think it's, it's, it's really good for young people to know that, the kind of uh, rejection is a way of steering you towards the things you should be doing. Rejection is quite a, a useful tool when you're young. Mm. It, it's horrible, but it, it you know, I, I shouldn't have been a journalist. I, you know, I failed a bank exam because I shouldn't work in a bank. Um, so it, it's hard, but it's useful. It was one of those things, though, because you got into acting. You did make it to Central as, as a student. Uh, but afterwards, you found that you were playing things like Corpse. Yes, I did play a dead body, and even more depressingly, had to audition. <laughs> now, I really hope that there isn't someone who auditioned for that and didn't get it. <laughs> like, we're, we're going in a different direction. Uh, and uh, it, was for a, a, it was for a British telecom training film where a big box had to fall on me, and, uh, and then I was dead. And, and they got uh, an ambulance to come, but I don't know if this still goes on, but it was a real ambulance with a real ambulance crew. So we had to hurry up because if a call came through, they would have to leave because they were only, you know, killing time, um, pretending to take care of me. But uh, I, I think I have seen, again, that showed up somewhere of me kind of going, with oh, a box landing on my head. But it got to the point where you sort of said to yourself, look, I don't have enough control. I'd prefer to have more control. So you started writing, performing, a comedy started coming your way, uh, comedy gigs. W was there a kind of a 
moment where you realized, hang on, I'm now starting to navigate my way into, into a career that feels like me? Um, yes, I think, I suppose it was, because yeah, I still had an acting agent who never, ever uh, got me a job at all. <laughs> I mean, very nice man. Uh, he lived in lovely offices. Somebody worked, but it wasn't me. I, was, <laughs> I paid for nothing in that office. And, uh, and then I was doing comedy, and it was starting to take off. And then wouldn't you, like, th what are the chances of this? He then got me a part in a play. And I'm like, I don't want to be in a play. Uh, I'm, doing my act I'm doing my comedy thing. And I didn't want to tell him about the comedy thing for fear he would then try to take 10% 10%. of the comedy thing, yeah. which had nothing to do with him. So um, I, I, I tried to get out of it. And then I went to the director at the read-through of this play and went, um, can I, do you mind if I'm not in your play? <laughs> and uh, he went, what did I? So he was very nice, because uh, I explained why, that I was at the Brighton Comedy Festival and I had to get to Brighton. So he wrote me out of uh, the second half of the play. So, uh, and I think it meant I had no lines in English. Uh, I think I, I had one line in Italian and one line in something else. Like, hire someone else. But anyway, <laughs> I was in it. And uh, we had to do this mad dash down to Brighton um, for me to do this comedy thing. And that was kind of when I realized, okay, this is stupid. I need mm -hmm. to knock the acting on the head and, and focus on the comedy. But even then, that was hard because I was doing kind of festival shows and hour-long shows, and that's very different than the circuit. And it was only really when I got on the circuit and sort of getting paid for 20 minutes mm. and was paying rent through doing stand-up, not by working in a bar, mm. that's when you kind of think, okay, I've, I've made it, essentially. Yeah. And to be fair, th there were bright moments as well in acting because I haven't mentioned Father Ted, and yeah, but that, that, that was is later. classic. That was later. Yeah. That was after the comedy. Um, after the comedy, I got a, an agent um, through the Edinburgh Festival, and she represented uh, Graham and Arthur, who wrote Father Ted. And she called him up and said, I've just signed a new Irish client. There's got to be something for him in Father Ted. And they were thinking, no, there's not. Um, <laughs> but she's quite an intimidating woman. So uh, they had me in to audition, um, and to audition for Father Noel. And uh, so I went in, and we had a great time, a laugh. It was a very fun meeting. We had a great time. And I walked out, and they thought to themselves, oh, well, we'll, we'll hire the real actor for that um, later on. Uh, because they wanted somebody older. They wanted somebody, you know, age appropriate to. And then it came to it, and they never did. And so I sort of got that part by, you know, uh, by accident, really, just because of laziness on their part. And, uh, but it is like the coolest thing I've ever done. And I'm so uh, grateful and delighted to be a part of that show, because it seems to me that show is timeless, mm. because the way it was written and filmed, it's just there. And I think it's kind of our generation's dad's army. You know, they'll be showing that, they will be showing Father Ted's mm forever. It's so special. I don't think it'll age. I don't think mm. it'll date. I often think, though, when I watch you on the Graham Norton show, that your acting experience has really helped you. In when I tend to look interested. <laughs> 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 I agree with you. So, some weeks I deserve an Oscar. Uh, <laughs> Well, I was going to say more in relation to the set pieces, because there are some great set pieces on the show, and obviously it's a pre-recorded show, so there is a bit of a capacity there for the actors on the sofa to do a little work here and there, like yeah. choreography and little, little bits where they might act out a scene from a film or do something. Yeah. And you're always like absolutely on the money with that in a way that I think lots of chat show hosts just wouldn't be able to, to manage. So do you feel that yourself, that you're... Yes, you're there, you're the host of the show, but you also have lived their life and, and, and kind of walked in their shoes a little bit. I mean, I've walked in their shoes a little bit. I think it gives you some kind of understanding of their world. But I think it can't be stressed enough how big the chasm is between our worlds. <laughs> um, like, the difference between sitting in the chair and sitting on the couch is enormous. I mean, I've said this before, but it is true that, you know, we'll do the show on a Thursday and we'll all have a great time. We'll have had a lovely time. We'll have done bits. It'll be so fun. 
And then on the Friday, I'll open the paper and I'll see a picture of all the guests coming out of a restaurant. I mean, where, where was, where was I? Um, and of course, it wouldn't cross their mind because I'm the help. Like I'm, I'm their comedy butler. I'm the person that facilitates. No, I'm not. No, but it's uh, no, it's my job, and I'm I'm so grateful for my job. You know, it, it's funny. Growing up, I used to watch the Late Late Show, and I used to imagine being a guest on the Late Late Show as a child. I'd imagine growing up to be a guest, and I never imagined being the host. But of course, being the host is much better because one, you get to be on the show every week, and 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 two, like the vagaries of fame are such that you know when we started doing the chat show. 20, it's now 21 years ago, when we started doing the chat show, um, you know, there were people we'd have killed to have who now we would kill not to have. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what happens. Are you going to name names? Well, no, I mean, but no, because we, they're not names. That's the point. <laughs> they were names. Uh, if I said them now, you're going, who? <laughs> Do you have guests who come on? Now, I have to admit, right, some years back, I did an interview with Mark Wahlberg, and it went really badly, I'm going to say. Okay. And then I saw your interview with Mark Wahlberg, and it was of immense comfort to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. We've, we've done some slightly better ones with him, but not many. Um, I mean, the first time, uh, I assume he was drunk. I, that's what I'm assuming. He tried to pinch your nipples. He did. And, and, like, do you remember when he used to do those Calvin Klein ads? Like, if you had told the young me looking at those ads in a magazine that one day Mark Wahlberg would be sitting in my lap pinching my nipples and I'd be annoyed. <laughs> I would never have believed it. Uh, <laughs> my favorite one, he was on with Will Ferrell. They were in some movie, uh, Daddy's Home, I think it's called. And uh, it's a classic. And, the, and I was asking about uh, introducing the Pope. And because uh, he introduced the Pope at some big mass in, in Chicago, I think. And uh, he was talking about how difficult it was because there was a singer and the singer was running over and he was going, uh, that singer, that singer. And Will Ferrell was trying to help him and going, oh, I don't know, who could it have been? And that singer, oh, he has a problem with his eyes. He has a problem with his eyes. And, <laughs> and he went, uh, uh, you know, Andre Bocelli. <laughs> and Will Ferrell's going, a problem with his eyes? The man is blind. Like... <laughs> It also explains why they couldn't get him off. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but that did make me laugh, Will Ferrell yeah. going, the singer, a problem with his eyes. Yeah. Are guests often a little bit worse for the wear? Because I've seen some really fun episodes where it seems like everyone's having a, a fine old time. Yes, people tend, I mean, occasionally you get people drinking a lot on the show, but normally if they're a bit, Tiddly. They'll have had, um, they'll have been doing a junket all day, mm. and so they'll have drunk during that to kind of numb the pain, or they'll, uh, they'll, you know, they'll have had friends at the show, so they'll have a drink in the dressing rooms beforehand or something. The, people tend, there isn't really time to get drunk on the show. You need mm. to, you know, start early. Yeah, yeah. true, true. Yeah. Well, one of the things I love is that you've often brought your mum to meet the celebrities, and she's not always as impressed as you would like her to be, or maybe you would think that she would be. So you've gone to Sharon Stone's house. You've uh, she was she loved meeting Momolum. Uh, yeah, she liked Momolum. Grace Jones. Uh, well, with Grace Jones, I remember my father. That was when my father was alive, and um, they came to the show, and Grace Jones was on, and Judith Chalmers was on, and uh, of the travel show, and. Uh, they were delighted to meet Judith Chalmers, and Judith Chalmers was so good with them, so lovely, and really, you know, interested in my parents and asked them questions and all that sort of stuff. And then uh, Grace Jones was across the room wearing some sort of Philip Tracy extravaganza, and um, uh, and I said to my father, "Oh, do you want to meet Grace Jones?" And my father looked across the room and went, "No." <laughs> so he he didn't meet Grace Jones. <laughs>
In your first book, you talked about how the book was the result of a huge amount of effort and desire like on your part to, to write a novel and it was also the result of a lot of people encouraging you and I wonder that someone so successful because you are outrageously successful would feel a need to retreat to the quiet of whether, wherever you write your office you know a particular room in your house and actually go into a fictional world when you have nothing to prove to anyone. It wasn't, I suppose the only th person I was proving something to was myself, uh, in that I'd always wanted to write a novel, you know, and so many of us say that, you know, oh, I'd love, oh, I should write a book about that, or, you know, whatever, and you don't. And I kept saying it, and finally, when I turned 50, I kind of thought, this is the moment, I'm gonna do this. If I'm gonna do it, I'll do it. So I got a book deal, and of course, when you get the book deal, then you kind of think, oh, actually, now I really have to do this. Um, and, and you don't know if you can. And, and I was sort of, in a, a sort of negative way, encouraged by a writer at work who I was worrying about the book and hoping was going to be good. And they said, look at it this way. If you finish that novel, it is one of the best books in the world. Because the vast majority of novels aren't finished. They're in the bottom of drawers, at the back of cupboards, they're on a hard drive somewhere. Uh, you know, it's very, I think anyone could start a novel. The, the hard thing is typing the end. And, I, and you would never do that. Well, I, I hats off to people who do that without a deal. I was only able to do that because I was getting emails going, where's that book? Mm. Um, and, and that kind of gets you to the finishing point. So it, it, I think the discipline and the drive of an unsigned author to, to write and finish a novel is extraordinary, you know, because mm. they're doing something else. They're working, they're earning money doing something else. So they are so driven that they're, they're writing that book in borrowed time. Um, and I, that's, I, I'm incredulous of it. Did you consider a pseudonym at any point? Because I actually thought to myself that it might have relieved some of the pressure around you in the same way that, say, J.K. Rowling now writes under the name Robert Galbraith. Yes, now, I interviewed J.K. Rowling about that. And she said, oh, nobody knew, nobody knew. Like, somebody knew. Like, <laughs> the agent selling that book, would you like to buy this book? You should buy this book. <laughs> I can't tell you why, but you really need to buy this book. Don't bother reading it, just buy it. <laughs> like, yeah, no yeah. one knew. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I could have gone in with a pseudonym, uh, which would have taken the pressure off, but it would also meant I probably wouldn't have got a book deal. Uh, <laughs> so, oh, come on. Uh, so it's, no, but it's a kind of a practical thing. It's yeah. a practical thing of kind of, I would have I then had to be the person writing a book, mm. finishing a book, and then submitting it and doing all that thing. Um, whereas putting my name on the cover, although it was exposing and you know the, the prospect of humiliation was quite high, it also meant that I got the book deal. I didn't have to go through, I didn't have to jump through all those hoops. Mm. The only hoop I had to jump through was the writing a novel hoop. Mm. And that was hard enough for me. Mm. So I thought, mm. yeah, that's better. I mentioned at the start that I was really shocked by your book um, because I had expected something completely different. Yeah. Were you shocked by your book? Um, no, in this, I, and I've talked about this before, but I, I, I think one of, the, again, having my name on the front of a book, um, it, it means you get the book deal. But I think one of the problems is that you get in the way, like, when people ask me about what I'm reading at the moment, I might remember the name of the book. The chance of remember the author is zero. I really, I never do. Mm -hmm. I remember the story and the world that I'm inhabiting, but I don't know who wrote it, unless it's an author I really like and I'm buying, you know, their fourth or fifth book. And what I didn't want to be, I didn't want to get in the way there. I didn't want to kind of be reading over the person's shoulders. And I thought the best way to do that, or to avoid that, was to remove my persona, all the things you expected, to remove all those things from that book. Um, but equally, you need to write about something you know. So uh, when I <laughs> removed my kind of, you know, London media, all that stuff from the book, it turns out the last thing I knew anything about uh, was Ireland in the 70s. So, um, <laughs> so hence, <laughs> 
that's what I'm writing about. Yeah. yeah. And did you do, you know, what a lot of people do uh, in terms of plot and structure? Did you know exactly where you were going, you know, when you started the book, how it would end? You know, did you have a clear plan or were you more like Zadie Smith who writes to a blank page? No, I, I wasn't. I was very much uh, David Nichols, you know. Mm. Um, oh, and if you haven't read Sweet Sorrow, his new book. His new book, actually. He's in Dublin on Monday. Oh, is yeah. it? It's mm. lovely. Have you read it? I'm in the middle of it. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. it's gorgeous. Anyway, um, he, I was at a book event with him when I was promoting uh, my memoir and I said that I was going to be writing this novel and he said, look, um, it sounds really uncreative, it sounds really dull, but um, plan it, Make, plot it out. You're not tied to it, you can change it, but it just means you've got scaffolding. It means you, can, you know where you're going. Um, and so that's, for the first book, that's what I did. And more than that, I also, I made it a kind of a murder mystery book, so it had, you know, because it's a genre, it has a particular structure. They find a body, you know, then you find another body, the detective gets in you know, danger, uh, the end. And, <laughs> and for a first-time writer, I found that really helpful. Yeah. Um, but what I discovered as a writer was that actually the, 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 find, you know, the mystery element didn't interest me. What interested me were the relationships characters, and the yeah. characters. So uh, with this book, um, although there is a... You know, there is a plot and things are revealed along the way. It's not a who done it. It's more of a what happened. What happened? Yeah, because the new book, A Keeper, it relies on, I suppose, a kind of a very interesting device, which is that a collection of letters are found, and it goes back through time to tell us about a particular relationship. I know you're going to read a little bit from the novel. So, would you like to set the scene for us? So, there's two time periods. One is now, and that's Elizabeth comes back from America, and she finds these letters. Uh, but the, um, the other time period is when her mother, Patricia, was a, a much younger woman. Um, but she's been, like so many people, she was the eldest daughter, and she got kind of trapped looking after her mother. Uh, the mother's now dead. She's in her early 30s, and she decides she'd like to meet someone. So she goes to her friend, Rosemary, and uh, Rosemary is going to help her plan this. I've got glasses here somewhere. So, this is uh, Patricia and Rosemary meeting up. They were sitting in the coffee pot, which was the nearest thing to urban sophistication that Bunkara had to offer. It was owned and run by Eileen Moore, who was married to Cahill the printer. After a much-heralded trip to Paris, Eileen had decided to open her very own café. A vast, gleaming coffee machine had been imported from Italy, along with a huge marble bar top. Sadly, the counter had been broken in two in transit, but Eileen put her sausage roll display case over the join, and now you'd only notice the repair job if you were looking for it. There were even tables and chairs placed out in the street. Patricia's mother had never approved. She couldn't understand why anyone would want the world and his wife driving by, looking at what you were eating. She would have felt like a cow in a field. <laughs> Rosemary carefully divided their chocolate clair in two. Well, there were no fellas around here. None you'd want anyway. Anyone decent is gone. Cormac Phelan was about the only one I sort of fancied, and Slutty Carol got him. <laughs> She's a fierce whore, Rosemary observed while licking some cream from the side of her mouth. Fierce, agreed Patricia, and the two of them sat in silent, sat silent in mutual, mutual contemplation. How could a man be found? Kilkenny. I couldn't. You could. I could drive us in one Sunday. There were those big dances at the Mayfair. That's where all my brothers went to shift girls. Rosemary, look at me. I'm 32. They'll think I'm a mother come to collect my kids. I could no more go to a dance. You could. You look great. But her reply lacked conviction. I just want a nice farmer. He doesn't need to be too young. I don't even care if he doesn't live around here. A farmer's wife. Doesn't that sound lovely? Yes, Rosemary sounded unconvinced. I just think you'd feel useful. You'd be a team, I suppose. How do I find a farmer? This conundrum rendered them silent once more. But then Rosemary sat up straight and fanned both of her hands in front of her. She had the answer. The journal! What? The farmer's journal! They have ads in there. I read it in the salon. You get the farmer's journal in the salon. People leave it behind. The point is, they have ads in there. The getting in touch section. It's farmers and women who want to meet a farmer. 
Patricia's face indicated she still didn't fully understand. Looking for love, like lonely hearts. That's your best bet, I'm telling you. Oh, God, Rosemary, I'm not sure. Well, it's worth a try anyway, Rosemary said, and crammed the last of the eclair into her mouth. Um, and uh, I assumed that that getting in touch column was long gone. Mm. And uh, then I got an indignant message from the uh, Farmer's Journal saying, oh no, it's <laughs> large parts of Ireland have slipped through the World Wide Web and uh, <laughs> the getting in touch column is still very much alive and useful. Yeah. I love something you said actually one time about Bandon. And it makes me think of this book as well. It's that, you know, being in Bandon or growing up in Bandon was exactly the same as being a celebrity because everybody knows who you are and they're all looking at you all the time. Because small towns are like that, aren't they? No, absolutely. And you don't get to choose mm. when you bump into someone you know. <laughs> and I think in a way it's kind of why I like Bantry, you know, being in Bantry mm. uh, for the summer because although... Lots of people here know who I am. I know who lots of them are. You know, I'd recognize their faces. I know where they work, or I, I actually know them. And whereas, so, you know, I'm Graham off the television, so my job is just a bit more exotic, but equally, you know, that so-and-so works in the butchers, or that so-and-so from Super Value on the Tills, or whatever. And uh, whereas in London, if you're walking along and people know you, like, you really don't know who they are. And it, that's a much more, uh, I don't know, discombobulating, alienating feeling. It's a very odd thing. You spend a lot of time in West Cork, particularly during the summer. You're down here for maybe three months at a time. Do you often find yourself now cherry-picking details from, say, the lives of people you know in West Cork for the fiction? A little bit. I mean, the um, no, I've been very careful. I borrow lots of locations. <laughs> I borrow lots of locations. Mind you, there was a terrible thing with the holding that I never knew that uh, I had uh, these Ross sisters, these three women, uh, and, and it's sort of basically Duras. Donine is Duras. Mm, there are Ross sisters in Duras. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's <laughs> yeah, so not bad about that. But, um, uh, but no, I was very careful not to uh, pick people, um, but lots of the locations. Like, uh, mm. Holding is basically... Durus and out the mizzen a bit, mm. and then this one is more uh, towards Bandon and out towards kind of Timaleague and Dunwurley, out that part of the world. Mm. And do the family read the books? They do. I don't write them for my mother, but if my mother didn't like them, I would feel I'd failed in a way. In that, well, no, in that, in that we read a lot and, you know, and we talk about books and I know the sort of things she likes mm. and the sort of things I like. We both like a story. We both like plot. And, you know, I think both of these books kind of deliver that. Mm. If, if you read them, you know why you're reading them. And hopefully by the end, you are satisfied that you've had a, a full uh, story. Mm. Um, I wonder though, like this part of your life, I think is is maybe something that any family can easily accommodate because you know you have best-selling books, uh, you're a wonderful success. But for portions of your career, um, <laughs> <laughs> maybe there were times when it wasn't always as easy to. Um, bring your work home with you or talk about it that much because it was a little bit more outrageous. Yes, I, I think there certainly was some relief in my household that yeah. I changed my name. Uh, so that I was From Graham Norton, Walker yeah, to Norton. Norton. And that was because of the equity card for actors, Yeah, there was right? an equity card. But, uh, but there is a woman called Mary Norton in Bandon. Mm. And uh, bless her, a lot of people thought she was my mother. Uh, <laughs> so I ruined her life, not... <laughs> Not my own mother's life. Um, <laughs> but you got some good advice, I think, from, I what think it was like? Niall McMonagall. Oh, yes. Um, your former teacher, who you talked to him once about honesty, and I think he, he said something along the lines of that you have to pursue your own path in life because you can't do the thing that would always comfort and please your parents 
because no. it has to be your life lived the way you see fit. And I well, think... Well, I mean, what he said was more, even more brutal than that. Mm. What he said was that, you know, you can't live your life for your parents because they'll be dead. And, uh, <laughs> and then you're left living a life for who? You know, that it's yeah. not your life, but, you know, and I... And I, and I listen, I, I moved away. Mm. That's what I did. And so moving away makes not living a life for your parents mm. much easier. Uh, you can make much more selfish choices when, you know, you're not in Bandon. Mm. I, I think if I'd still been in Bandon, or even still been in Ireland, it would have been much, much harder to forge the career I have. Well, over the past few years, we've seen Ireland come a huge distance in terms of the same-sex marriage referendum, um, repeal the eighth. You know, there's been such a, I suppose, seismic change. And when you look at that and you think about where you were at a certain point in Bandon, trying to figure out who you were and, and what you weren't as well, I mean, do you look back with a certain sense of nostalgia that you didn't get to have some of what we have now in terms of openness or equality? The openness and equality is phenomenal. I, I think kind of modern Ireland is such a beacon of hope you know, and when you, when you look at countries in other parts of the world who are still kind of, they seem like Ireland used to be, you kind of think, like, well, look what Ireland's done in, you know, 30 years, 20 years. It's extraordinary. It really is. And it sort of gives you hope that other countries could do that too. Other countries can turn around and hopefully will. Oddly, though, I think things like... Um, you know, struggling with your sexuality or anything. Like, being a kid's a kid. Being an adolescent is being an adolescent. That will never be easier. It's not supposed to be. Mm. It's supposed to be an absolute mind mess. Uh, because you don't, you know, you don't know anything. Mm. And um, at least, you know, you're not going to be arrested, which is good. Uh, but, but the rest of it is still as puzzling and tormenting and will give you all the sleepless nights that it, was, that it did back then. Mm. And, and that's kind of lovely in a way. And, and I think one of the nice things about uh, aging, because you kind of think, when you get older, you'll get so jaded, you'll never have those sorts of feelings again. Mm. And what's nice about getting older is you do. Like, you still can get your heart broken. You can still be confused. You can still be made a fool of. But, um, but the nice thing about ageing is you know you will get past it. You know that in a year, you'll be going, what was I thinking? <laughs> Why Are you talking was about I your exes? About hmm? Are you talking about all your exes? Yes, all okay. my exes. All of them. <laughs> all of them. Yeah. I know you said in one of the books that there was an ex you stayed with for a long time just because he had a really nice dog. Oh, yes, I did. And, um, and because he was such... And then we broke up, and I kind of thought he was such a waster. I thought, he'll never be able to look after that dog. Um, I'm going to get that dog. Um, because I already had a dog, and, and they were very good together. The dogs were good together. We weren't. Um, and I thought, oh, this was good. Uh, but no, he did manage to look after that dog until... No, uh, I, oh, Go well. for it. Well, it had a very sad ending. He ran over it and killed it. Didn't <laughs> He was upset. <laughs> <laughs> to move to a happier topic, <laughs> um, one of the things about you... You didn't do it on purpose. It was an accident. <laughs> but uh, to move to a happier um, <laughs> situation, when you were a kid, you struggled a bit with being Irish, being from rural Ireland. You wanted to get out. And you often say now that you couldn't have imagined that you would voluntarily choose to come back to rural West Cork for three months every year. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about the changing of, of your, your kind of feelings around West Cork. Um, well, you know, there's, it's, it's, there's two things going on, isn't there? There's, there's West Cork changing, and then there's me changing. And, you know, uh, I'm older, I've got some money in my pocket. That changes how you are in the world. Um, but equally, uh, you know, West Cork has changed. But and yet it hasn't. Um, there's so many things that, that are the same and so familiar. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of where Ireland's in a very sweet spot at the moment, is that it's, it, it's moved on, particularly young people. You know, when I'm 
walking around the place or in the pub, or I'll meet young people, and and I'm so impressed by uh, Irish young people in that they have a kind of a, a confidence and a, a self-assuredness, but they're not precocious, they're not cocky or annoying. Um, they just have a, you know, a sense of themselves. And you can tell that I think young people are so proud, like patently, obviously proud of what's happened to Ireland and that they live in a kind of modern country that's fit for purpose. Mm. And that's, uh, I, I feel so happy for them, you know. Yeah. And I, I do wonder now, if I was 18, 19, would I be, you know, chomping at the bit to get out in the way that I was back then? I think in a way I would, just because, you know, you want to see the world. Mm. But I think maybe I'd have come back um, sooner <laughs> and, and would, stayed Would here. you come back full-time, though? I mean, if the, I know the money is obviously different, but, you know, would you consider... I'd come back to retire. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't come back to work. Okay. Uh, no. Okay. Because the money is different. <laughs> <laughs> I would do that. <laughs> that would be stupid. <laughs> a bit old for that now. Um, I wonder as well, though, I often think that one of the nice things about West Cork, um, not for people who are working there, but sometimes for people who are on holiday there, is that sometimes the broadband isn't necessarily, you know, well, it's getting better, but, but you know, it's, it feels a bit more like you're removed, that you're not going to be snapped on a camera phone, that your image isn't going to be uploaded. And these days, if somebody says something or does something that is patently wrong, as per, for example, Liam Neeson had a, had a, had a very tricky year. Yes, um, it did. It, it, it <laughs> <laughs> what were you thinking? <laughs> but it can go around the world in about 10 minutes. And it is actually terrifying to, to conceive of that idea that your whole career could be under threat in that way. No, and you have to, you live with that because people are cancelled all the time. Mm. Um, people are just, you know, written off and sometimes kind of wait what you know what happened there but they're gone and it's it's too late and you you know I'm lucky I'm at one end of my career so if for, I, I don't know why I will be but if I do get cancelled for whatever reason then at least I've had a very nice career thank you very much I can kind of walk away um, but that sort of stuff is is difficult and I'm glad that the beginning of my career uh, there wasn't any social mm. media, you know, because uh, on Channel 4 days, you know, we did jokes that we would never do now, <laughs> you know, and we're, I'm not proud of them. I'm not looking back at it going, wasn't it great we were able to do those jokes? I'm, uh, it was just a different time. Mm. We actually could say those things on television and people would sit in rows and laugh at them. And, and we don't do them now because we're self-policing we're, we don't do them now because people wouldn't laugh at them. Mm. People, people wouldn't enjoy them. Um, you know, there was, we did a lot of really nasty jokes about people mm. that I don't think people would want to hear now. Mm. Um, but that's for now. I mean, actually, the pendulum will swing. We'll have, we'll, we, we will get to a point where we'll have had enough of that and actually we'll want some viciousness again. Um, and that's okay, too. It's just, it's a style, you know, styles of comedy... Um, change and I think one of the reasons why the show's still on is that you know my team and myself you know we recognize that we're kind of we, you know we see the jokes that oh they don't play anymore mm. or you'll be doing jokes about someone until they seem vulnerable and then you kind of think well, actually can't do those anymore the other thing that we've I mean, it didn't work, but in a post-Trump world, I stopped doing any jokes about Boris Johnson because I just kind of thought, that's not funny anymore. No. Um, because that's one of the reasons that Trump came to power in the first place, because people laughed at him so much that they, they almost Well, and they reported him. everything he said, and, and you see Boris doing exactly the same. They report everything he says, and I think there's a real danger about that like even actually even in this country you know you've got a couple of right-wing loons walking around the country um posting things constantly on facebook and and twitter and people retweet them to 
to voice their indignation, to kind of go, isn't that awful? But in doing that, you amplify their voice. You take them out of the funny little weird wooden world they were in, and you give them a great big broad platform where people are suddenly going, oh, what? You can think that? Oh, you can think... And, you know, you see it writ large in America, but it's funny how it, you can see it starting here. Mm. And it's, it's scary. And yeah. hopefully it doesn't grab a, a foothold. But, you know, I, I do think the more those things are retweeted, and it doesn't matter why you're retweeting them, even if you're retweeting it for your, for your indignation and shock, don't. I ignoring those people is the best thing to do. It's the only thing to do. <laughs> And on that very important note for today's world, that is where we will leave Graham Norton and that particular interview at the West Cork Literary Festival. But uh, yeah, as you can imagine, there were a few more questions asked and uh, a very good green room reception had in the wake of that particular evening. My thanks again to uh, Graham Norton for allowing the interview to go out on the podcast. Also to his assistant, Becky Nicholas, who was an absolute champ in uh, getting all the permissions from the BBC and from Hachette, his publisher. My thanks to Emer O'Hurley and uh, everyone at the West Cork Literary Festival who were absolutely brilliant. Graham's books are available in all good bookshops and they include his novels, Holding and his latest novel, A Keeper. If you'd like to see who I'll have on the podcast next, or if you'd like to follow me generally, I'm on Twitter at, at Nadine Regan, or you can follow my show page at My Roots Are Show. Bear in mind, you can also check out other podcasts I've done recently with people including the actor Donald Gleeson, the writer John Ronson, the musician and author Tracy Thorne, or the American musician and author Willie Vallotton. All you have to do is go to My Roots Are Showing podcast on Spotify, Acast, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. I did mention earlier, but it is worth repeating, this is an independent podcast. So if you enjoyed, please do consider giving a little review on iTunes or a star rating or even just telling your friends about it because we do want to get the word out there. Right, that is it from me for another episode of My Roots Are Showing. Till next time, this is Nadina Regan signing out. Do take care. 